Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah Brimer. I am your host on Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that follow button if you haven't already. And also go ahead and leave a review and rate the podcast as well. It would really help me out and I would really appreciate it. So today... You guys, we are back with another serial killer. I haven't done a serial killer on my podcast for a while now, and I thought, why not? And we're not just talking about any serial killer today. Today, we are talking about the second most prolific serial killer in the United States history. And as you can already tell from the title of the podcast today, we are talking about Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway was convicted of 49 murders, again, making him the second most prolific killer in United States history. And even though he was convicted of 49, which seems like an astronomically high number because it is, his actual number of murders is unknown, but it's believed to be about over 70 murders. His victims were mainly teenage girls and young women through the state of Washington in the time period of 1980 through 1990s. So let's talk about life before these heinous killings started. And I went back and forth on this a long time debating on whether or not I even wanted to share his pre-life and his upbringing and all of that because I just don't think he deserves it. But I decided to do so because he doesn't deserve it. But I think this is a good way to get a grip on what was going on in his life at that time and during that time and what led up to everything. So Gary was born on February 18th in 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah to his parents who are named Mary and Thomas Ridgway. Gary was one of three boys, um, and he didn't have the easiest childhood. His parents were in no way the perfect poster of what a marriage should be, and they got into a lot of violent arguments that Gary and his brothers witnessed. He struggled with wetting the bed till he was about 13 years old, and after each episode of that happening, his mother Mary would help him clean up, and he later admitted that because of that, he ended up developing feelings of anger and also a sexual attraction towards his mother and then those feelings turn into like a fantasy about murdering her and Gary dealt with dyslexia and was held back a year in high school and when he was 16 he actually stabbed a six-year-old boy six-year-old boy after leading him through the woods with him and he stabbed him through his ribs and into his liver fortunately the boy survived the attack but this was only the beginning of gary's violent outbursts i was never able to find why he needed to stab the six-year-old boy or what the motive was in that i don't think there was one but luckily the boy did survive 
So Gary graduated high school in 1969 when he was 20 years old, and he married his 19-year-old girlfriend at the time, Claudia Craig, in 1970. Right after that, he joined the Navy, and while serving in Vietnam, he had many different affairs. He was in no way, shape, or form the perfect loyal husband. Um, I'm not really sure if affairs are the right word. He just like he slept with a lot of different sex workers while he was gone. But Claudia wasn't the most loyal to Gary either because she had actually had an affair as well. And because of all of the infidelity, their marriage ended in 1972. Gary moved on fairly quickly and he got his next wife pretty immediately after that in 1973. And her name was Marsha Brown. That marriage lasted a little longer, but because of infidelity, again, they got a divorce in 1981. But later, Marsha disclosed that on multiple different occasions, Gary had become very violent with her and was very like overly demanding in their sex life. So with that being said, and with that kind of background foundation story, let's move on to the murders. So the first five victims of the Green River Killer were discovered in the Green River. So the Green River is a 65-mile-long river in the state of Washington. And in the summer of 1982, the bodies of 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield and 23-year-old Deborah Bonner were found. Wendy had gone missing on July 8th and was found several days later on July 15th. Deborah had gone missing on July 25th and then had been found on August 12th. Both of these women were sex workers, and a detective on the case at the time was 32-year-old Dave Reichert. And at first, no one really knew what to think about these killings and finding these bodies in the river. But three days later, after Deborah's body was found, Dave received a phone call from dispatch telling him that two more bodies had been found in the river. And at that point, he knew that he was dealing with a serial killer. So the next two bodies that were found were 31-year-old Marsha Chapman as well as 17-year-old Cynthia Hines. And while Dave was scrummaging through the river at the arrival of hearing of the two bodies that had been recently found, he actually stepped on a third body. 16-year-old Opal was found also on August 15th, the same day as the other two bodies. And after five women were found, 25 detectives were assigned to the case immediately. Opal was only 16 years old and she was a junior in high school. Her mom had actually told her, she did an interview and said this, she literally sat Opal down and showed her the pictures of the victims in the Green River just a couple days before and she told opal how important it is to always stay safe and to never go off with anyone and to just be aware of your surroundings at all times and opal told her mom that she would be careful and nothing like that was ever going to happen to her but unfortunately it did and after the first five victims were discovered that's when this unknown killer at the time was marked as the green river killer as far as suspects or even persons of interest the police had no idea where to start start. But then shortly after that, they started looking into a man by the name of Melvin Foster. So Melvin was a cab driver who worked the late night slash like graveyard shift as a cab driver. And he said himself that when you're driving around late at night, you see a different side of the world in a different way that people live. He constantly came across young women walking the streets and sex workers and prostitutes and would sometimes actually give them rides and give them a place to stay and feed them. And so obviously, 
obviously when the police started looking into him, seeing how involved he was in these girls' lives did not look good. But what's crazy is the reason that Melvin was even looked into to begin with is because Melvin called the police station himself and told the police that he actually thought he knew who the Green River Killer was. And the more police started talking to him and thinking about it, the more that they were kind of honing in on the idea that he could have been the one who did it. And I think that's not odd because there's so many cases that the perpetrator inserts themselves into the case. So that was definitely a thought that crossed the police's mind when they were doing their investigating. So they had Melvin come into the police station to be questioned. And when he was asked why he was always so giving to the girls and why he would offer them rides and why he was spending so much time with them, he basically said, who else is going to do it? Regardless of anything, Melvin was completely torn apart by the police. Police pretty much kind of made it up their decision in their mind that this is who they wanted it to be. And I think it was more so just because of the fact that they had no one else to go off of. So they kind of saw this guy, saw that he was doing these things that sometimes a perpetrator would do. And they kind of went with it. They had Melvin under a 24-hour undercover police surveillance. They had so many people lined up outside of Melvin's house and following his every move. But regardless of their speculation, there was no evidence that ever linked Melvin to the other girls other than the fact that he would give them rides sometimes. There was no DNA. There was nothing. And after a while, Melvin was finally dismissed as being a person of interest and the police were really back to square one. So after the initial five victims were found, there were no other victims that had been discovered for months. So police thought that this was kind of the end of the killings and whoever did this got his aggression out and it was done. But that was very much just wishful thinking. So now let's talk about February 1983. This is when a new detective came onto the case and really switched things into gear and pretty much paved the way for the rest of this case. This man's name was Bob Capel. When Bob came in and started reviewing the detective files of what had been done thus far, he noticed quite a few slip-ups. Firstly, the previous detectives on this case weren't really questioning pimps and prostitutes about the murders and if they knew anything, which is kind of a red flag considering the fact that all of the victims had something or some sort of connection with sex work. And with that, Bob set up an entire new protocol. He also told detectives that despite their beliefs that the Green River Killer had stopped his killings, he hadn't stopped killing and most likely had been continuing his killings the past seven months that they thought he was done. So then May 8th of 1983, just a couple months after Bob came onto the case, the body of 21-year-old Carol Christensen was found in Maple Valley, Washington by a family who was out in a forest searching for mushrooms. And the way her body was found was beyond bizarre. She was actually found face up, like lying down face up, and she had a paper bag over her head. And like I said, she was face up and her hands were over her body. So like her hands were on her stomach and she was holding a bottle of wine as well as she had a sausage, like cut up sausages that were shaped in the shape of a pyramid on her as well. 
And if that's not bizarre enough, she actually also had two dead trout, like dead trout fish lying on her neck and on her shoulders. So according to Bob, he said that the reason that she was staged like this is because the killer wanted to come back and see her like that. Keeping her in this staged, so to speak, way really allowed the killer to come back and relive his crime. And then in the summer and fall of 1983, more and more bodies had been discovered. And by the end of 1983, 14 more bodies had been found and 23 more were missing. These women included Shonda Summers, Gail Matthews, Shelly Antosh, Constance Nayon, Kelly Ware, Mary Bridget, Kimmy Kay, and many, many, many more. Mostly all of these victims had some connection with either being a prostitute or a runaway. That was pretty much the Green River Killer's victimology. And these bodies weren't found in a river, though even though the first initial five were, the rest of them were not found in the Green River. So the community was becoming more and more restless with the fact that so many women were being killed, yet the police didn't have, or at least weren't coming out with, any possible suspects or people of interest. How this killer was able to kill so many people and get away with it every single time was beyond so many people. And I could completely understand that. I think that like if people were just dying and dying and dying and dying, and like especially if you're related or connected, or there's so many things and emotions that run through your head and knowing that this person is still out there and that they could do it again and they will do it again. I can't even imagine that. So the Green River Task Force was waiting for a break that they seemed to never get until they finally got help from someone who they least expected it. Are you guys ready to hear who this is? Another serial killer. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, you guys, welcome back. So you guys are about to be mind blown because when I was reading this and just going through all of this, I was just shocked this entire way. So in October of 1984, 
Ted Bundy, my friends, Ted Bundy, who I'm sure you all know if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know who he is. I also have a video all about Ted Bundy on my YouTube channel, but Ted Bundy wrote in a letter to the police station and offered to help the police in finally tracking down who he calls, quote unquote, the river man. So that is who Ted Bundy would that's like the name that he came up with for the Green River Killer. And a lot of people believe that Ted did this for one of two reasons, or probably both, honestly. The first one was that the Green River Killer victim count was getting so high, like astronomically high, that Ted Bundy, being the monster he was, wanted to stop the Green River Killer before he had the chance to possibly catch up with Ted Bundy's kill count. Also, the second reason is that the two of them are very similar in their narcissistic way and want to be the center of attention at all times. And with the Green River Killer getting so much attention, in Ted Bundy's mind, it was like drawing away attention from him and what he had done. So he needed to insert himself in the whole situation again. And Ted Bundy also lived in Washington at one point before, and he also killed women there, um, which is just twisted in its own way. Uh, So he is familiar with the area. And on November 17th of 1984, Bob Keppel and Dave Reichart, both of those detectives that we spoke about earlier, met with Ted Bundy at the Florida prison he was kept at. And as far as behavior goes, Well, first of all, Ted Bundy had a lot to say about this entire situation, but let's begin with going over what he said about this killer's personality. So Ted Bundy said, quote, he doesn't want to get caught. He's going to make changes in his behavior to, you know, stay ahead of you and avoid publicity. He may not be a sophisticated type to sit down and analyze this. He knows it like a fox knows his stuff. He knows it like any predator seems to know his victim, not in an analytical way, but in a sensory and an intuitive way, end quote. So that was able to tell police about the type of person they were looking for. And let me just tell you, it was absolutely crazy listening to Ted Bundy talk about this. Um, there's The recordings are all over the internet, so you can go check them out if you're interested in it. It was so weird hearing Ted Bundy try to track down another serial killer. But moving on, Police then asked him about the dump site that the bodies were being found in, and for that he said, quote, the dump site where the bodies are left are significant. There's no underestimating that. In fact, that really is all you have right now. I mean, there may be some other evidence, but these are certainties. No question that the victim and the guy were there. That's a tremendous advantage. That's where I would focus, end quote. And after that, Ted talked about why the murderer would go back to these dump sites and revisit his victim. Victims, and his answer was shocking to police. He said, quote, I think there are a couple things, and this may sound a bit strange. I'll offer them to you for what they're worth, end quote. So in Ted's opinion, he believed that the reason that the killer was coming back to see the victim was to commit necrophilia, which if you don't know what that is, it is when you have sex with a dead body, with a corpse. And this was obviously very shocking to the police because they never really even considered that a possibility. And then Ted gave advice on how to catch him. He said, quote, my opinion, the best chance you have at catching this guy red-handed is to get a sight with a fresh body and stake it out. And 
quote. He told police to keep it quiet, surveil the site, and wait for the killer to come back. Police hadn't thought about this idea before, so when they heard Ted Bundy request it, they decided to give it a shot because at this point, anything they were willing to give a shot if they had not already. But the problem now was finding a body for the killer to come back to that hadn't been skeletonized yet. So now fast forward to 1986, and at this point, over 50 detectives, 50, were working on this case, and the FBI behavioral unit came in and profiled this killer as a white male, a loner, and in his 30s, which honestly is like one of the biggest wide, vague variety of people that I've ever heard of. Um, but the police started doing some digging into old files in preparation to try and figure out a who this murderer is and b possibly carrying out the plan that ted had suggested so then two detectives one by the name of randy mullinex and the other named matt haney both of them made a connection they were able to connect the green river victims with a local truck factory worker named gary ridgeway the more the police dug the more connections they were able to make and one of those connections was with a woman named marie malver and could Good Lord, ready to lose your mind on this one. Okay, so when I, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. I'm going to tell you about this. So Marie, from what I could gather, was a sex worker um, matching the usual victim profile of the Green River Killer. And on April 30th, 1983, Marie was strolling along late at night and her boyfriend, which I'm assuming was her pimp also, was watching her and watched her get into a dark colored pickup truck. And her boyfriend followed her in his car behind the truck. I don't know if that was like a regular thing that they did, but he followed her and noticed what seemed to look like a struggle between Marie and the man that she was in the truck with. And he tried to speed up, her boyfriend tried to speed up and he tried to get to the truck, but he ended up losing the truck. And three days later, Marie's boyfriend went to Marie's father and told him about what had happened. And after that, Marie's father did a house-by-house search looking for the truck, and then they found it. They literally found the truck, and it was sitting in the driveway of someone's house. And without any hesitation, Marie's father ended up calling the police, and when they showed up, they knocked on the door, and they were met with a man who owned the house named Gary Ridgeway. Yes, Gary Ridgeway. And the police questioned him lightly and they didn't really have anything to go off of and there was really no connection. And so they literally left. They just, they left. They said, okay, like you're good. And they left. But as police soon figured out over time, there were just too many connections being made between Gary Ridgway and the victims. So much so that on April 8th of 1987, they ended up getting a search warrant for his house, truck, and took DNA samples from him as well. But none of the items that were collected from his house, which were like thousands and thousands of items that were taken from his house, and none of them connected to any of the victims. And they had nothing to go off of, and the case fell back again. Again, and detectives continuously felt disappointment not having this case go anywhere. So now let's fast forward again to the summer of 2001. There was a forensic scientist named Beverly Himmick who was put on the case, and she used a new technique that's called STR DNA testing, which I am no scientist at all, but that this was basically a way of genetic profiling people, and for this case, it was the Green River Killer. So she turned 
turns to the suspect list, and at the top of that list was Gary Ridgway. Yeah. So on November 30th of 2001, Gary was leaving his job. He worked at a truck factory and he was leaving his job and two police officers walked up to him and told him that he was being arrested for the murders of the four connections, the four murders of the connections to the Green River killer case. And his response was just okay. And if that does not send you chills up your spine, I do not know what does. So when trying to go back and see if Gary was connected to more than just four of the victims, scientists were able to find pieces of paint on a lot of the victims' clothing. But it wasn't just any type of paint that you would get at like a Home Depot or anything like that. The paint that was found was a very specific type of paint that you can't just buy anywhere. And more importantly, it's the brand of paint that Gary Ridgway uses at work. He like paints trucks for a living, or he did, he used to. He painted trucks for a living. So the type of paint that he used was the same paint that was found on the victims. So Gary had a meeting with his lawyers because at this point he's screwed. He's done. He's caught. Time's up and he can't get out of this one anymore. So he ends up having a meeting with his lawyers and they convince him to come up with a plea deal that Gary will take the police to the dump sites of where he left the victims in exchange for removing the death penalty. And it actually took the prosecutors three weeks to agree to this plea mostly just because the prosecutors did not want to remove the death penalty because they thought that Gary was in no way, shape or form deserving of the, like deserving of any mercy or deserving for the will to live after what he's done. But they agreed because they thought that the families of these victims deserved much more justice than Gary dying. Like they would rather give the families the justice and the peace in their mind that they'd deserve knowing that their loved ones have been found and brought home and they can bury them properly and do what they wish rather than killing Gary. And so then they agreed to the plea deal and Gary started talking. Gary told police that his routine, so to speak, was to drive along the streets in his truck at night, search for prostitutes and offer them any amount of money that would get them into his car. Once they got into the car, he would start talking to them and in his words, quote, get her mind off anything thing she was nervous about and just you know she thinks this guy cares which I didn't I just wanted her to get in the vehicle and then I would kill her end quote he also said quote every time I opened my wallet there would be a picture of my son on one side behind my ID and then they would see that and then that would lower any big defenses end quote which is just absolutely disgusting he would do this to show the prostitutes like I'm not the Green River killer like I have a son I have a family I have a job. Why would I be the one who's going around murdering all these people when I have like a perfect family life? And then it would just all turn so tragic. So Gary was really bad at remembering faces and he really just only remembered where he left some of the bodies, not all of the bodies, just some of them. And when speaking about why he would go back to revisit them, he actually ended up proving Ted Bundy's theory right. Gary would go back to revisit with the corpses to have sex with them. And when asked why he preferred necrophilia as opposed to just having sex with a woman who was alive, he responded, quote, well, for one thing, you'd 
have to pay for it and this one was already dead end quote and gary actually had to talk to like a psychologist when trial was happening and all of that to see what his like state of mind is at obviously he's not sane but like to kind of see where his mindset was at and the psychologist had asked him do you think that there is a part of you that is missing that other people have and he said oh you mean like caring you guys that that just does not make you go absolutely insane and like send so many chills down your spine i don't know what will that is just so oh my gosh i can't even i i don't even know what to say so then on november 5th of 2003 gary ridgeway pled guilty to first degree murder of 48 people six weeks after the plea there was a sentencing and he was sentenced to 48 life sentences so like i said the death penalty was taken off the table when he went to show the police where some of the bodies were like i said was not all of the bodies there are still many 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 victims of gary ridgeway out there who have not been found yet and that is very heartbreaking and hopefully there will be a time where those victims will be recovered but the death penalty was off the table because of the fact that he showed the police where some of those victims were um he's still alive today but that, you guys, is the case of the Green River Killer. We don't know a lot as far as, like, you know, him having individual experiences with each of these victims because he doesn't even remember because there was too many to count. He was just one of those people that it wasn't, he didn't care. It, they were just disposable to him. It was like one after another, after another, after another. It was just quantity. Like, he just wanted to kill as many people as he possibly could. Um, it's just, it's, I don't even know what to say. I feel bad for his brothers because, you know, his brothers have to be known as someone who is related to them. They are, as far as we know, not murderers. So it's crazy to think that like there's people out there who are related to him, directly related to him. I feel bad for his son. I feel so bad for his son. That's probably as far as his family, who I feel the worst for. Um, and then again, the victims, I could just, ugh, I just, I feel so awful for the victims the vic the families of these victims and you know when he had his trial and he had his sentencing there were victims or families of the victims who were there who were able to make a statement to him that he would listen to and he actually broke down crying in court which was the first time that gary had any her had ever shown any sort of emotion or anything like that he broke down crying and there was someone who's told him you know you make me want to go against all my beliefs because this man was a christian and he said like god tells you to love everyone regardless of anything and um, regardless of their mistakes and he doesn't exclude anyone from that so i forgive you and gary started crying and the judge actually called him out on his bs and said you know i just think that your compassion is the farthest thing from genuine it's fake you don't feel emotion like you don't care like stop acting like you care basically because you don't and i think that's totally right i think his whole crying thing was total bs it was just a total like sympathy card that he wanted to throw in there he even said himself he doesn't care so like why do you care now you don't just cut it so that you guys is the end of today's episode i would love to hear your thoughts on this case you can either dm me at savannah brimer on instagram and twitter and you can also send in your theories as well or your thoughts i guess for this case but your thoughts as well as case recommendations for cases to do in the future at killer instinct podcast at gmail.com again that is just 
killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. But that is it for me today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. As always, like I said in the beginning, go ahead, hit that follow button to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you go ahead and rate and leave a comment on this podcast, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that as well. All right, you guys, that is it for me today. I hope you guys have an amazing rest of your week. I will be back here next week for another episode. Have a great week, you guys, and stay safe.